So this is week three of our series on dealing with conflict. You might think that all conflict is bad, but it isn't. There's good conflict and there's bad conflict. So what would be good conflict? Good conflict is illustrated when a couple of individuals that may be part of a family, part of the workplace, decide in spite of their significant differences of opinion, temperaments, and everything else, that they're gonna to listen to one another, not for the purpose of scoring points or defeating the other individual in an argument, but instead to try to actually learn what that person is saying, what his or her heart might be. So they're very respectful, they work through issues, they're very civil toward one another, and they uh, are able to arrive at very important uh, solutions. So that would be good conflict. Every organization, every family needs to be characterized by good, healthy conflict. Every church staff, every leadership board, every congregation. So if you're ever in a business meeting at whatever church or a town hall meeting and you decide to raise a question about the budget or something else, and you get these frowns, and you're made to feel like you're something of a problem because you've raised an issue. No, you're not the problem. The organization, no doubt, is the problem. It's also needed in every family where children get to see mom and dad working through issues in respectful ways, and where the children are even encouraged to share diverse opinions. So every organization, every family needs good, healthy conflict. Okay? All right. So what's bad conflict? Well, bad conflict would be where people are using biting sarcasm or a great deal of anger for that matter, leaving emotional wounds that can last for days, weeks, even an entire lifetime. I can think back to childhood experiences and uh, certain statements that were made by individuals that were wounding for me. Maybe you can as well. I can tell you where I was. I can tell you what was said, who said it, the circumstances. I relive those experiences from time to time because of their negative impact upon my life. So unfortunately, bad conflict is also part of just about every relationship, every marriage, every family, and yes, even every church. So that being the case, one of the most important skills you and I can learn in life is how to resolve a conflict, how to reconcile a strained or broken uh, relationship. How do you do that in your family? How do you work through issues in healthy ways in your marriage or in the workplace or even in the life of our church? Well, the problem is most of us have never been taught how to do that. And more than likely it was a skill we didn't necessarily learn how to do from mom and dad because maybe they weren't very effective role models because nobody taught them either. I doubt that many of you uh, if any, ever had a class in school on Conflict Resolution 101. 
And unfortunately, most churches don't seem to care much about it, to do a lot of teaching on it either. And yet, as I say, this is one of the most important life skills we can learn. So that's what this series is all about. Our text for the morning comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great sermon. He begins that sermon by sharing a, a variety of statements, oftentimes referred to as Beatitudes, in which he is describing the inner character qualities of kingdom citizens. So with that as sort of an introduction, this is his statement in verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now Jesus is not then saying here that our efforts to make peace with other people will make us children of God. No, our efforts to make peace and reconcile and broken relationships is evidence of the fact that we are already the children of God. If you have your sermon outline, I encourage you to take that out now if you haven't already done so, and you'll notice as you look it over that there are four key questions based on this statement from Jesus that we're gonna be uh, talking about this morning. Here's the first of the four. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, you notice that the verse does not say, blessed are the peace lovers. Presumably everybody loves peace. Nor does it say, blessed are the peaceable. Seems like there are certain individuals who are very compliant, they're easy to get along with, and uh, they don't get ruffled about much of anything in life. So that, Jesus isn't talking about our having a certain kind of temperament here. So he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now there are several, I think, significant misconceptions about what peacemaking really means. And I want to share with you a couple. So if you're taking notes, uh, both of them begin with the letter A, all right? So, that will perhaps be of some help to you. So one misconception is to think that peacemaking is all about avoidance, all about avoiding or running from a problem, pretending it, it simply doesn't exist. If you were here two weeks ago, you may recall that we encouraged each one of you to take a personal conflict style assessment. We gave you a tool to help you do that. And you may recall, if you were able to do that, that there are four wrong ways that we typically deal with conflict. Two of them, two of the four, we'll get to the others sometime later, but two of the four relate to this matter of avoidance. One is referred to as a passive style, and the other evasive. Maybe you've been in a conversation with somebody who essentially said to you, I don't want to talk about it anymore. What, of course, that does is to shut down any possibility of having good, healthy conversation about the issue and working toward some type of reconciliation. That's not peacemaking. None of us likes conflict. But running from the situation, pretending it doesn't exist, trying to put a, a good spin on things when things are really broken, is hardly what Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. So no, he's not talking about avoidance. Another misconception is to think that he might be talking about appeasement. It's the person in marriage, or in a friendship, or in a workplace, who's always giving in, always sort of letting the other person have his or her own way, 
even at the expense of what is right or what is true. Now that's not it either. We know from scripture that there are times that Jesus, who's our example, our model, could be very confrontational. So he stood his ground on a number of issues, refusing to promote peace if it meant compromising truth as revealed in scripture, or for that matter, endorsing what wasn't ethically or morally right. So no, the peacemaking that Jesus has in mind has nothing to do with avoidance or appeasement. So what is it? Well, here's my definition. To be a peacemaker means to actively work to promote well-being, harmony, and reconciliation in all the relationships of life. So it's seen in the reconciliation of a marriage, for example, once filled with hatred and maybe the threat of divorce. Now they're back and they're speaking civilly to one another and they work through significant issues. It's seen when a parent and maybe a child, an adult child is having a tough time with a parent. Previously, maybe for a length of time, not even on speaking terms, but now they're speaking kindly to one another. Or you see it in the workplace where two individuals and loggerheads are now working through things in respectful ways. So that's the peacemaker. It's somebody who is seeking to promote well-being, harmony, reconciliation in all the relationships of life. Okay, if that's what peacemaking means, who then can be a peacemaker? You can. Anybody can be a peacemaker, assuming that certain prerequisites are present in that person's life. And there are two very significant peacemaking criteria that need to be in place, prerequisites. What are they? Well, here's the first. To become a peacemaker, you and I must be at peace with God. Now, some of you might hear that and think, really? Uh, Rich, that's the sort of thing maybe I would expect a pastor to say. So I get that, and maybe if there's a God in existence, it would be a pretty good idea to be at peace with him. But I mean, is this like essential to making peace in all of our relationships? Well, that's the Bible's perspective, yes. You see, if we haven't been reconciled to God, how in the world is it possible for us to have a spirit or a desire to be reconciled in all the broken relationships that we come to in life. I mean, think about it for a moment here. Why is it that there's so much fighting and arguing and conflict in marriage these days? Why such violence in our city streets? Why is it that passengers are having a tough time these days, it seems, with flight attendants? Or for that matter, road rage. Why all of, you know, it seems like people are at each other's throats. Why all of that hostility? I'm sure there are a number of very significant secondary factors that contribute to that. But according to the scriptures, people are not at peace with God. Now, people can have a kind of a truce relationship with God. You know what that is. A truce, of course, exists 
when you stop the outward expressions of warfare. So you're no longer, at least for a season, husband, wife, parent, child, whatever, you're no longer firing out verbal missiles at one another. You've agreed to not do that for at least a period of time. And there are people who have a kind of a truce relationship with God, where in effect they say, God, you stay up there and do your thing with the angels. Leave me alone down here to do my thing. I won't bother you, you don't bother me. So that's a truce relationship, but of course, it's not peace. Peace can only occur when issues are settled and the hostility ends. Now, you might ask, uh, Rich, are people really at war with God? Well, the biblical answer is yes, they are. The, the scriptures teach us that by nature, the person without a life connection to Jesus Christ resents God's claims on his or her life. And when the Bible says we don't measure up to God's standards, you know, we just sort of blow that off at best. We resent being told that we need to bow down and submit to the authority of God. We want to be the rulers of our lives. And meanwhile, God resents the fact that this individual whom he has created in his image is thumbing his nose or her nose at, at scripture's authority and his own authority where they refuse to submit to him as Lord. And so you can have a truce, but until you've settled the issue of who is going to be the leader and the boss of your life, you or God, you don't have peace with God. So how does the issue get settled? Well, when there is a war between nations, or maybe it's between labor and management, husband and wife or whatever, sometimes a mediator is brought in to listen objectively to what both sides are saying in an effort to bring about a peaceful resolution. So it is that God sent Jesus Christ into our broken world to be our mediator. Not only to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile God to us. Look at these verses in Colossians chapter one. By him, that is Jesus Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace. By the way, that's the same verb as we have in our beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of his blood on the cross. Now this includes you, who were once so far away from God, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has brought you back as his friends. So Jesus Christ and his sacrifice upon the cross, the shedding of his blood, gives us the opportunity to be reconciled to God. Don Richardson wrote a book about this that I think illustrates it well, entitled Peace Child. Maybe some of you have read it, he describes his missionary activity among the Sawi tribe in Indonesia. And it seemed as, as in spite of his best efforts to convey the gospel to them, they weren't interested whatsoever. They didn't, didn't even understand what in the world he was talking about. They were a warlike people. Uh, they honored revenge, even murder. So how do you persuade people with that kind of a history to recognize there can be a different kind of a life. So he's looking, how in the world do I communicate how these people can be reconciled to God and to one another and experience healing? How do I do that? 
Nothing was working. Until, that is, he learned an ancient custom that they had whereby if one village gave the gift of a baby boy to be raised in a different village, those two villages would experience peace with one another for as long as that child lived. And the child was referred to as the peace child. So Richardson hears that and he thinks to himself, that's the analogy I've been waiting for. And he began to open up and share with them how God sent Jesus into our broken world to be our peace child, to reconcile villagers to himself. That was the key that unlocked the gospel in their hearts and lives. Many responding to Christ, the church was established, and peace came to the Sowies. So it can be for you. At the heart of a lot of the violence and the hostility in our societies today and a lot of our relationships is the fact we're not at peace with God. But he's offering Christ to you today to be your peace child. If you receive him, the war can end. So if we're going to be peacemakers, that's the first prerequisite. We must be at peace with God. Are you? Are you at peace with God? Many of us have committed our lives to Christ, but if you're not there yet, if you have not yet received Christ as your mediator and Lord, that's the next step that you need to take. Make certain that your personal war with God is over by receiving Christ as God's peace child to you. So that's the first prerequisite. Now, assuming we're there, we still need to make sure that in place is the second prerequisite, and that is to be peacemakers. We also need a new view regarding ourselves and others. In other words, how can we be peacemakers if we're always looking at everything in terms of its impact upon us? See, that's why there tends to be a lot of quarreling. We need a new outlook. Now, I don't know about you, but speaking personally, if I'm in a potential conflict, I'm feeling myself getting worked up, I can be very touchy, I can be very sensitive, I can be very defensive, which are qualities, as we've seen, that don't make one a very good peacemaker. So the peacemaker is one who isn't always looking at everything in terms of its impact on him or herself. So that tends to be the explanation for a lot of our discord. Everybody is looking at issues from a self-centered perspective. It's all about me, what I care about, my rights, my needs, and that's the attitude that promotes a lot of quarrels and conflict where my self-interest is doing battle with your self-interest. So that's why the peacemaker needs a whole new view with respect to self, which essentially comes to this. We begin to realize, having been reconciled to God, that this miserable, sinful, self-centeredness of ours just isn't worth bothering about at all. I mean, it doesn't deserve any attention. And as we're wrestling through those kinds of issues, we begin also to realize that we need a new view with respect to other people. Maybe that other individual is behaving the way he or she is because that person has never been reconciled to God or because that person is functioning according to his or her own self-centeredness. So we begin to view that person more objectively 
we have concern for that individual and th therefore we're more humble instead of being demanding. Now you might say, Rich, all of this sounds really great in theory, but how in the world does it become reality? I'm a Christian, I'm at peace with God, but how do we get this new view of self and others? I think the Apostle Paul answers that for us in Colossians 3, verse 15, notice. He says, let the peace of Christ. Now it's worded that way because Paul is concerned to talk about the peace that Jesus gives us. It's peace from Christ. Let the peace from Christ rule in your hearts. We'll come back to that phrase. Since as members of one body, that's the church, you were called to peace. Now this word rule gives us our term umpire. And if you're at all connected with sports, baseball, whatever, you know the umpire is the one who controls the game and keep things you know, in proper focus. So he's saying, let the peace of Christ, the peace that Jesus can give you in this exact situation that you're dealing with right now, be the umpire in your heart, which is where all of this self-centeredness otherwise tends to be produced. Let the peace of Christ, instead of focusing on the self-centeredness stuff, let the peace of Christ be your umpire. So it's asking Jesus for help. Lord, I'm about to work in, uh, walk into this difficult uh, work situation where there's the potential for a lot of conflict with my work team. Or Lord, I need to bring this issue up with my spouse or with one of my kids or my parent. And frankly, I, I think this could be volatile. How do I go about doing this? Lord, I need your peace right now to replace my self-centeredness to help me be a good listener in this exact situation. That's what you're asking Jesus Christ to do. So, do you want to be a peacemaker? Those are the two prerequisites. First of all, making sure that you're at peace with God, and then asking for the peace that Jesus can give you to rule in your life, resulting in a new view of yourself and others. All right, but that's still a lot of theory, isn't it? How do we do it in, um, in actual practice? Well, it brings us to our third question, how do we make peace? What's the method? What's the process? This is important because among other reasons, peacemaking doesn't necessarily take place because you're seated in a church service today or listening online to this message. No, it's in relationships with other people that have the potential for conflict. That's where we become or give evidence to the fact that we're peacemakers. So how do we do it at home? How do you do it in marriage, in the workplace? How do we do it in the life of our church? How do we actually make peace? One author has come up with, I think, a biblical method, uh, an acrostic, P-E-A-C-E. -E. You might want to write these down in your notes. The P in peace stands for plan. Plan a peace conference. Now, later in Matthew 5, Jesus puts it like this. If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, so you've offended somebody, you see that, per oh yeah, I, what do you do? He says, go at once and do what? Make peace. Other passages that we looked at, for example, the first week indicate that the offended needs to go. This is the offender. So what the Bible essentially is saying is, it doesn't matter if you're the offended or the offender, it's always your first move. 
You go, you take the initiative, and what do you do? You schedule a sit-down, face-to-face meeting. Why? Because conflict is never resolved on the run, accidentally, when you're in a rush. And it certainly isn't going to resolve itself, so you must intentionally deal with it. So when does that happen? Well, the verse says at once, which means as soon as possible. Now, maybe the immediate moment when that individual is bringing something before you isn't the right time for you. And you're going to have to say, you know, I, I, it's obvious you care about this issue, and I care about it because I care about us. But the reality is I'm, I'm late for work. I need to get going, or I've got this important meeting. I'm stressed out because of the, being with the kids all day. Can we meet at some other time or location? And you say, yeah, how about when the kids are in bed tonight, or how about we meet tomorrow with a coffee shop, or whatever. So you're scheduling a sit-down meeting. That's what the P stands for, plan a conference. The E in peace, or the first E, stands for what? Empathize. So now that you're sitting down with this person, you've got a peace conference, you're sitting at the table, as it were, now what happens? Certainly you have your issues, you have your feelings, you care a lot about the particular matter that's before you, and you will need to articulate that at some point, but this is emphasizing, remember, to empathize with their feelings. You're doing what Paul says to do in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Look at this verse. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, you have your own interests, and you need to be concerned about them, but also looking to the interests of others. So Paul is saying, pay attention to their needs too. It isn't just about you. Again, when we're upset, we tend to think only about ourselves. You hurt me. What about me? What about my rights here? And God is saying, well, please recognize the importance of planning a conference and thinking of his or her needs too. If you're a parent, you do this consistently. You're sort of an arbitrator just by virtue of the fact you're a parent. Here are your kids, you know, having a tug of war over some toy, or little Susie doesn't quite understand why Billy got to be first. And so you're working through these things, and, and what do you do? You listen, you try to empathize, try to hear the child out where they're hurting, why they're arguing. So yes, you plan a peace conference, but the next thing you need to do is what? Empathize with their feelings. A stands for attack. And you're thinking, all right, you know, now I get to give that person a piece of my mind. No, it's attacking the problem, not the person. Why? because you really can't focus on fixing the problem and fixing blame at the same time. So look at this verse from Proverbs chapter 15, first verse. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Gentle answer, so you're lowering the decibels, tends to quiet things down, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So he's saying essentially engage your mind before your mouth. He's saying be sincere, not sarcastic, you're attacking the problem, not the person. Now this is how Paul puts it in his characteristic bent on the practical in Ephesians 4, 29. 
<clears throat> don't use foul or abusive language. But what? He says, let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Christian author H. Norman Wright lists a number of communication techniques along these lines that we need to avoid. I want to share some of his examples with you and invite you as I'm going over these just to ask yourself, is, is this me? Do I do any of these things in times of conflict? So here's the first. You did it only because you feel guilty. Now, how would you understand that one? He calls that mind reading or jumping to premature conclusions. You don't know what the motivation is necessarily. You're jumping to a conclusion. Here's another one. Anyway, look at how filthy this room is. Well, who's been talking about the cleanliness or the lack thereof of the room? So what does he say about that? Well, that's obviously switching the subject. You know, maybe the heat is on, you're feeling, boy, this is getting personal for me. So you switch the subject. Is that your technique? Here's the third. Why make a big deal out of nothing? Ever find yourself saying that back to the person? Why make a big deal out of nothing? What is that doing? Well, maybe to that person it is a big deal, which is why he or she is raising it. Why make a big deal out of nothing? I mean, that's using so-called logic to hide from emotional reality. It's not considering, it's diminishing the importance of that issue for that individual. All right, let's see what you do when I divorce you. Whoa, what's that? He calls it dropping the A-bomb. Yeah, intimidation, exploding threats. Or you're just like your father, that no good bum. What's that? Blaming the partner for something which he or she can't help or can't do anything about at the present time. Why are you inserting that in the conversation? How does that help? Here's another. How can you be so stupid? Yeah, okay. What's that? Humiliating the person. One more. Silence. You don't say anything. You'd give this disgusted look and you pout and you give the cold shoulder treatment. So you're planning a conference. You are empathizing with the person's feelings, attacking the problem. C stands for cooperate. You're cooperating as much as possible. You're seeking to define the problem where are the areas of agreement and disagreement, and what's your own contribution to the conflict? Paul in Romans 12, 18 says this. It was part of the section that uh, JT preached on last week. If it is possible, not always possible, but if it is, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, that suggests to me having a cooperative spirit. It's a desire to work through issues until you decide on a mutually acceptable solution. Maybe your child has a legitimate point. Ah, maybe your spouse is right. And so you have to kind of swallow your pride at that point. And instead of attacking the person or ridiculing, you might begin by saying something like this. I have something 
we need to talk about. It's difficult for me to share this with you, but I care about you, I care about the relationship. This is what I think is the problem. You identify it, describe it. Here's what I have done to contribute to the problem. I mean, you might think that the person is 95% guilty, but there's always the 5% of your involvement, and you're describing your own role in all of this. And I just like to know how you feel about things. You're identifying possible solutions. James puts it like this, James 3.18. Those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of goodness. So he's saying, what you sow is what you're going to reap. If you want people to be cooperative with you, you're going to have to be cooperative with them. Whatever you dish out, you're going to give back. So if you have conflict in your family, could it be that uh, part of this is because of your own behavior? I don't know, maybe you're always planting seeds of griping and complaining and putting other people down. And so what happens? Well, what you're gonna reap, of course, is, is uh, conflict from all of that. So James says, plant seeds of peace and cooperation. You're planning a conference, you're empathizing, you're attacking the problem, you're cooperating. The last letter in peace stands for empath emphasize. You're emphasizing reconciliation, not winning. So I mentioned earlier that there are four wrong styles of responding to conflict. Two we've already uh, mentioned again today, passive and evasive. The other two are being defensive and aggressive. Those two basically point to a desire to win at all costs. You're got, you have to be in control, and it's about being right. Some things, like healing of a broken relationship, you might win the battle, but you're going to lose the war. So some things are more important. So reconciliation means you reestablish the relationship. Now, you might think, having worked through this list, peacemaking is a piece of cake. All you have to do is learn this formula and apply it, and everything will be terrific. Well, I mean, peace is a seldom achieved without a price. It costs Jesus his own life to make peace between God and ourselves, and it might be costly for us as well. So what can I possibly say this morning to those of you who perhaps have spent months, even years, working through a painful issue with a family member, perhaps, or somebody else with whom you've had ongoing tension for many, many years, or maybe it's more recent than that? What can, what can be said to be of encouragement? Well, look again at the promise that Jesus gives us here in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now the reason we're called children of God is because those who are peacemakers act just like God would in that situation. And Jesus is implying here that it might, your behavior might even get noticed. And so maybe the person sees you functioning in a very tense environment and responds by saying, wow, I saw the way you handled that very difficult situation. And I've got to tell you, I think that's how God would deal with it. And so the, you are a reflection at that point of your heavenly father. So I'm wondering today, where is your, in your personal world is peace missing? 
Who do you need to contact? Where do you need perhaps courage to call for a peace conference yet maybe again? Maybe for you it's a matter of empathizing with a person's feelings or attacking a problem, not the person. Maybe it's being more cooperative or seeking reconciliation. But may all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ to reconcile us to himself now motivate each one of us to be greater peacemakers than perhaps ever before. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, help us to be like you, bringing people together by being instruments of your peace. And Lord, by as much as possible, living in peace with everyone. So fill us with courage where we need to have difficult conversations. Fill us with empathy. Help us to enter into the concerns and the perspectives of the others. Give us the desire, Lord, to attack the problem, not to be abusive by attacking the person. Help us to be cooperative and to seek reconciliation in all the relationships of life. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.